0: So again, the, the, the whole <clears throat> question, assumptions, views about reality and what is real and what isn't real, ontology, if you like, is the fancy word for that, um, is very much part of the context uh, of imaginal practice conceptual framework and how we'll hear some of these teachings and the confidence with which we'll be able to play and experiment. And, and I mentioned this much earlier, but it's worth saying again, people are very different with this in regard to imaginal practice. Some people um, don't seem to need much of a uh, exploration of philosophy and questions of reality or o- opening up, they can just plunge into imaginal practice and play to their heart's content um, without needing any of that, and some people are even aversive to any discussion of uh, any philosophical discussion or exploration or opening up or questioning. Uh, don't like the conceptuality of that. Um, other people need a certain amount, which varies very much from person to person, to kind of legitimize or give a basis or framework, a supporting framework for practice of the imaginable. So Some people just need a little bit. A friend was telling me the other day, just had a conversation with someone she had at a party, and he, this person just needed a little something um, that legitimized... Um, certain explorations with the imagination for them. Uh, And oftentimes that is the case. Um, And other people need quite a lot. And there'll be some people who, um, many people probably, who are so, uh, if you like, um, entrenched or uh, indoctrinated, if you like, with with the the dominant cultural modernist paradigms and views and assumptions, that it really either um, takes an awful lot of of, um, pondering of the conceptual frameworks and philosophy underpinning the assumptions to liberate enough space and justification for imaginal practice and views. Um, Or or it's actually impossible. Um, So that's just interesting, especially as as a teacher, to note that. Um, And I just... Chair, for me, I'm actually really interested in these questions of um, ontology. Not that I actually think uh, uh, that one can never figure out the truth, but I'm still interested in um, conceptual frameworks and possible conceptual frameworks. In other words conceptual frameworks can be things of beauty and they are structures, avenues that open poetic possibilities uh, and beautiful possibilities for the heart and the soul and experience. Um, so I'm I'm very interested in that and if you like, a dimension or aspect of the soul loves ideas and loves concepts. It's just that I don't, personally, for all the reasons I've said, um, I don't... Uh, believe that one will come to a conceptual system or framework that is the truth or the answer. And that frees up the whole investigation. Actually enter into it, playing with it, the way one might play with uh, with images or any other practice. So there's a lot of uh, range here, too, uh, around the whole <coughs> uh, ways of relating to the, this... Um, Questions of reality and ontology in regard to the imaginal, uh, and imaginal figures, imaginal worlds, etc., and all that. Um, and oftentimes, as I said, uh, some people, many people, will will object. Um, they're attracted, perhaps, um, or not attracted, and 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 something objects. And and those objections, philosophically, if you like, are are y- y- usually fairly predictable. Um, understandably so, given the culture. Um, And they say, well, that's fabrication. Aren't you fabricating that image or that perception of the world, or that kind of perception of the cosmos or experience of the cosmos? Um, And it's fabricated. Now, of course, the other unspoken side of that sentence is or that objection, is the assumption is that there is something that is not fabricated. There's a perception that we can have of the world or of self or something that is real, objectively real um, and not fabricated. And so the person voicing that objection is... has not understood has not seen through practice through deep insight into emptiness the, the fabric the extent of fabrication all perception is fabricated all experience all appearance is fabricated and without wanting really without saying all fabrication is the same so to fabricate an image uh, is, is the same as fabricating a perception of um, this chair that I'm sitting on. Without saying that, um, there's something that the insight, the deep, thorough, total insight into the fabrication of perception, um, and then the emptiness of fabrication too, um, there's something that that level and that thoroughness of insight does uh, that opens up and dissolves this objection isn't that a fabrication uh, about that image or or that way of um, uh, fantasying something in one's life or self or other or world, etc.? So that that objection—it's a fabrication. Isn't that a fabrication that? Um, almost always betrays an assumption of something, some kind of reality that we can experience that's um, the thing or this or that object or self or experience a perception that's not fabricated. Not enough exploration of, um, uh, of emptiness there. Or one might say, well, these images, imaginal figures, well, they're not real because they're not material. I cannot touch it or kick it or or whatever it is. Um, Hmm. But again, a little more probing into this shows shows a lot of problems. So, I mean, one, one thing that occurs to me right now is that, well, we've talked a lot about how images can affect the energy body. Um, and so there is, if you like, a kind of sensation in regard to images. And the more you go into the matter of practice, the more it's actually how strong this can be at times, and how vivid and how, how precise and particular some of this can be. Um, but perhaps even more significantly, um, we might just ask this person uh, who's objecting this way, we might ask them in, in response, what is matter? What do you think matters this may maybe something we'll come back to? Um, because... If you take the root of modern physics, actually, you go deeper and deeper into this question what is matter? Well, it's made of atoms. Well, what are atoms? Well, they're made of protons and electrons and neutrons. Well, what's an electron? And you go deeper and deeper into it. It's actually very hard to say what matter is and whether matter exists or doesn't exist in the way that we tend to think of um, what it means to exist, to be as something independently, in a certain place, at a certain time and everything what, what, that I said before. Then we go into an electron and a lot of physicists say, what's an electron? Well, um, it's, it's an equation, really, and that equation is an equation of probability of manifesting in certain ways depending on how, it, uh, depending on how one is looking at it. What is matter? I say the real is material, and well, I respond, what is matter? What do you mean by matter? And those equations exist in other dimensions than three dimensions. They exist in 13 dimensions or or something more than actually. They exist in a number of dimensions, depending on how many electrons we're talking about. Or philosophically, if one takes what's called a phenomenological view, as uh, an attempt to sort of just approach philosophy through just what we experience. Say, well, I experience what? I experience resistance or Um, coolness or heat um, or hardness or softness and that's what I'm calling matter well that's actually a different thing then we're back to the realm of perception and fabrication of perception etc so this thing this uh, idea that only the real is what's material very understandable but probe a little deeper what do we mean by material what is material what is matter and we can approach that in different ways uh, physics, philosophy, dharma practice. It dissolves, if you like, our hardened notions, of our ossified notions of what matter is. And we, when we explore, when we question deeply through one of those avenues. And then a person might say, well, what's real is what's shared. So if I get a hundred people in a room and let's say... I don't know, at least 97 of them um, agree on what they, what is there, what they experience, what they see, that everyone sees, the table or whatever it is, then we can say the table is real. So reality is given by what is shared, and the other two or three people are just a bit bonkers or weird or whatever. Um, Again, so. saturated and habituated are we to that kind of assumption that we, we don't often r- really question it. So there's a few things to say here. I mean, one is just to point out that many images are shared, of course. I mean, uh, culturally, for example, and one just needs to think of the image of, of um, Jesus or, or the Buddha in, in Buddhist cultures or, or our, our culture nowadays. Um, so many images are shared <coughs> um, And of course there's many, secular, it doesn't have to be spiritual or religious, many secular images are shared secular fantasies of existence, of the world of society, of self other, etc. as we've touched on briefly Um, so that's one thing. There's also um, to allude to this is not the subject of this retreat, we really have to wait to another retreat, but It's very interesting, uh, that's an understatement, but um, a whole, if you like, direction opens up when two or more people engage in imaginal practice together. So as a kind of uh, um, relational meditation in the field together, including lots of um, aspects and dimensions of their experience, meditating together, talking with each other, experiencing, communicating together in the realm of the imaginal. Um, then there's ways that images uh, are, are shared in, in, in that way. And actually in all, in all kinds of ways um, uh, through, through that. That's a whole that really a whole other retreat. But in a way, more importantly to this, this objection, the real is what's shared, is, is just posing, posing a counter-question, which is, can something have a kind of reality? Because a lot of the problem here is in that word reality. Can it have a kind of reality, or a kind of validity, if you like, um, when it is not shared? Can something not be shared and have a kind of reality, a kind of validity? Etc. And Why not? So when, um, this is very important, when um, Corbin and Walter Wink and w- William Blake and people say the imaginal is more real, whatever words they use to say that, more real than the physical, or, or um, when they say that, they're not implying that um, if you do imaginal practice right, um, if ten people do imaginal practice right, they all, they'll all experience the same thing. There's a kind of... Um, non-individual, shared reality that exists in the object is objective, independent of the individual. I don't think that that's being implied at all. Or if it is, I'd like to question that. Um, And when someone... I I don't know who used the the term the discipline of the imagination or disciplined imagination, again, in contrast to the imaginary or, or, or just... Uh, what we call being lost in Papancha or or just daydreaming and that sort of thing. Um, Again, it's not that if one practices with the imaginal one, uh, different people will see the same image and experience the same thing. I think, or I I would like to, um, I would hope that the phrase, whoever coined it, I don't know if it was Hillman or Corbao or someone, disciplined imagination um, really refers to what we were talking about earlier excuse me, earlier on the retreat, with the, the kind of um, delicacy and nuance of mindfulness that one is bringing to the imaginal practice, the sensitivity to the resonances, the tuning of the attention and the energy, the um, uh, noticing and inclination and tuning um, and encouraging of, of what nourishes and deepens and opens and ignites uh, and broadens the sense of soulfulness, all of that is, is the disciplined imagination. It does not mean that um, it will result in an experience or an image uh, that is not individual. So there's a... <clears throat> uh, this is very important. There's a, there's a, um, a writer, Robert Evans, and um, he's quoting uh, Corbin, Henri Corbin, who... Uh, So a theophanic vision, meaning a vision, in the sense of um, another, or could could be even oneself, or or something, or the world, that uh, something else is shining through um, that image, that figure, um, that imaginal seeing. It's it's, it's a sense of the divine um, uh, showing through that, um, coming through that. That that thing is a particular face of of the divine, of what is divine, seeing this or that as angel, if you like. The theophanic vision, he wrote, is essentially an event of the soul, taking place in the soul and for the soul. So just to comment here, um, this is Corban, So note, this is Corbin's words uh, taking place in the soul and for the soul so notice Corbin's his language and conception tends towards the u- use of the word soul as a kind of entity so we, we touched on this in the talk talks about uh, soul making so it's fine um, and that's his style of language and if you like I I would for myself tend towards more the language of soul making taking it away from entities but entities is fine as long as we know they don't have inherent existence Anyway, a theophanic vision, Corbin writes, is essentially an event of the soul taking place in the soul and for the soul. As such, its reality is individuated for and with each soul. What the soul really sees, it is in each case alone in seeing. So, in other words, uh, the reality of the soul is not consensual, is not shared, is not socially agreed upon. It's individual, and then he continues: the field of its vision, its horizon, in every is in every case defined by the capacity, the dimension of its own being. So the field of the soul's vision, its horizon, is in every case defined by the capacity, the dimension of its own being. Uh, now, actually, as yes, I want to read another very short passage, but I have to preface it by saying that Corbin's uh, system, if you like, for this, and his conceptual framework and his vocabulary is different than the one we've used. He's from a different background, sort of, um, he's talking about monotheistic, um, uh, I- I Islamic, actually Abrahamic, but primarily certain strands of Islamic mysticism, um, Etc. Drawing on Platonic philosophy, so so it's quite a different system, different vocabulary, different conceptual framework. But if uh, be- beautiful, uh, quite elaborate and difficult to explain. So I'm not going to try and outline all that right now. Rather just taking the liberty of sort of translating it a little bit for our purposes here. Um, translating the vocabulary, translating some of the concepts into ones that we've talked about more. And again, a passage from Avens uh, saying. Soul-making, okay, that's that's our word. Soul-making creates imaginal figures, but their reality is neither hallucinatory nor illusory. They are neither objectively nor subjectively real. Uh, in other words, they're not... Well, they're neither objectively nor subjectively real, but belong to the intermediary and mediating realm of the mundus imaginalis, which means it's Latin for the world of the imagination, or the imaginal world. <coughs> they are God or gods, we could say, seen in such a form as an individual person is able to grasp. They are God or gods, these. Uh, Imaginal figures created by the soul, they are God or God seen in such a form as an individual person is able to grasp. So, i.e., they are perceptions that are real or a reality for the soul, though they are, despite the fact that they are individual. Uh, and note here in, in both those quotes and what I really want to emphasize is they are if you like individual but dependent on on the soul so that we've emphasized this so much I'm repeating what we they are dependent on the soul if you like or we could say the the chitta the mind heart the way of looking the mind state the inclination the assumption all of that in the moment so that um Uh, dependent on all that arises the image. And we're we're never parting from that understanding of dependent arising there. Um, I think it was Swedenborg who wrote that in heaven, we could say in this uh, imaginal world, this mundus imaginalis imaginalis in Latin, in heaven, in, in the world of the imagination, the form of your world is what you are. And William Blake had a a beautiful phrase, um, as a man is, so he sees. As a woman is, so she sees. As a man is, so he sees. I'd like to add three words to the end of that because we can very easily, a person can think, well, I don't see angels. I don't see beauty. Therefore, I am not so spiritual, or not pure, or this or that. But I would like to, as a man is, so he sees at that moment. So at the at this moment, when the the the, the chitta is coloured this way, is uh, has this conce- conception uh, subtly operating, or or more consciously operating, etc. As a man is, so he sees. Um, so that again, we understand it's fabricated, it's dependent arising, it's empty, dependent on, like, like all perception, uh, it's a dependent arising. So, this, as a man is so he sees, we can t- talk about, uh, we, we can take that as a statement for being in the world and seeing the world. I see the world, I see the self, I see others, in a way um, dependent on this. Uh, how I am, if you like, in that moment. Dependent on the state of mind, the inclination, the conception, uh, the way of looking, uh, I, I see that way, I sense that way, I perceive that way. That's a fundamental Dharma concept. But um, it applies, too, to the realm of, of the image. So the, the reality of that, we have to acknowledge that with conventional reality, material things, that that is part of the fabrication, is dependent rising of the perception of everything. Everything, all perception is dependent, arising that way. But we're emphasizing it uh, as well in terms of it's part of the reality of the imaginal world. So, again, it's not an objective reality, it's not individual, it's not objective, um, independent of um, the individual consciousness, the mind and heart that are seeing that way. And yes, there are differences, if you like, in what's... Purely a figure that appears purely to the imagination versus um, something that's perceived that is material and shared perception with others, so-called conventional perception. Sometimes that's um, imbued with mythos and fantasy and sometimes much less so when we're practicing bare attention, as as we said before. There's differences in the kinds of fabrication that are operating there, and as I said, I I'm not sure how to fit all that together into a sort of grand, overarching conceptual framework. So acknowledging those differences, but there's something fundamental to all reality, which is as a man is, so he sees. As the consciousness is, as the mind is, so, so we see at any moment. All perception, dependent arising, fabricated, empty. And as I as I mentioned briefly before, it's this exploration and understanding of fabrication, and um, part of which is is the exploration of unfabricating, of learning to fabricate less and less perception through different practices, and eventually, hopefully, to um, Uh, To open, if we say to open to the unfabricated one, is not fabricating any perception at all. The exploration and the deep insight um, in in reflecting on that and understanding that, what that does is it opens possibilities and opens doors um, in terms of experience, in terms of the range of perception, in terms of understanding. And, and what's possible in terms of conceptual frames is massive so as I said putting that as the sort of basis and um, central axis if you like for what the whole of the Dharma is so that liberates a lot of possibilities for for um, for imaginal work for many people uh, Listen to this, um, in relation to this whole, as I said, this whole avenue and basis of understanding fabrication, understanding, um, understanding fabrication through learning to unfabricate, then realizing, oh, I learned th- that thing, either that um, perception or sense of self or whatever, was not fabricated then, therefore, I, under- when I when I looked in this way, therefore I realized it's a fabrication, going deeper and deeper into that until one reaches the unfabricated. Um, So, in a very different tradition, Avicenna uh, was a um, very uh, renowned Islamic philosopher, mystic, uh, also a doctor, very important um, uh, pioneer of uh, medical understanding and and just a general polymath genius person um, who who, who lived in the late... 10th and early 11th centuries. And in relation to this um, and the imaginal, this exploration of unfabricating and learning about fabrication, um, in relation to that and the imaginal, listen, she who confronts the darkness that reigns forever this darkness that reigns forever has nothing to do with uh, moral darkness or evil or anything like that. The darkness that reigns forever is, in Dharma language, the unfabricated, the unconditioned, what the Buddha sometimes referred to as the deathless or the, the uh, akata, asankata dhamma, the, the, the unfabricated. This transcending of any perception, darkness, because it's, uh, there is no perceiving there that reigns forever because it's beyond time. She who confronts this the darkness that reigns forever and does not hesitate to plunge into it for fear of difficulties will come to a vast space, boundless and filled with light. The first thing she sees is a living spring whose waters spread like a river over this interworld, the, the mundus imaginalis, the imaginal. Whoever bathes in that spring becomes so light that she can walk upon water, can climb the highest peak without weariness. Uh, Corbin writes about this passage from Abhisattva. Once the soul has emerged from darkness, once it has risen from the abyss of unconsciousness, again, by the abyss of unconsciousness, he means exactly, he doesn't mean unconsciousness like being under anesthetic or unconsciousness in in the uh, the unconsciousness in, in, in the unconscious in the Jungian sense. He means this: this uh, what the Buddha would call cessation of consciousness, cessation of perception, of feeling. If you know the Dharma lingo, uh, lingo from, from the Wheel of Dependent Origination. So this opening, if you like, to the unfabricated, this non-fabricating of perception. Once the soul has emerged from, dark, from that darkness, from that abyss of unconsciousness, um, and he writes. Um, This changing the appearance of things, walking on water, climbing Mount Kaf, which is a sort of mythic mountain in in that Islamic um, uh, spirituality. All these are psychic events whose scene and action are set in neither the sensible nor the intelligible worlds. That's kind of jargon for some Platonic philosophy, we don't need to go into that, but uh, let's just say the world of the material senses or of abstract ideas. Not set there, but in the intermediate world of the imaginal, uh, the alam al-mittal in Arabic, as it is called. Or, or, he says, or the world of symbol, if we translate the, the world of image and typification, he writes. This is the place of all spiritual recitals. Well, there's a lot of jargon here. By spiritual recital, he means spiritual, um, or so to speak, I- imaginal encounters with imaginal figures, etc., and this world, he continues, is intermediary between the intelligible and the sensible. It is the world in which spirits are corporealized, given body. Spirits are given body and bodies spiritualized. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff in there, as I said, about his system that's different in vocabulary. I don't want to go into that, but the real point is um, the interesting parallel between... Uh, what Avicenna describes, and the Siddhis, the, uh, what do they sometimes called, supernormal powers in English, described by the Buddha and in the Pali Canon and other Buddhist traditions, um, that someone who um, is able either to enter very deep samadhi, very uh, deep jhanas, or, uh, more commonly, very deep experiences of emptiness, or the unfabricated, this darkness that reigns forever, that's plunged into um, then, uh, for them, the world become the world of perception becomes malleable, um, and I don't know the answer to how much. Uh, you know, I've heard I've heard Tibetan teachers uh, uh, actually live been sitting in the room where they talk about people walking through walls, etc. Or is it just imaginal? An imaginal world opens up with great malleability there and great possibility for walking on water and and the rest of it. So I I just want to make that parallel. Really, the the central thing is this exploration of fabrication through learning to fabricate less and less, which exposes the the fabricated nature of all perception, emptiness of all perception. And going deeper into that opens up the malleability of perception and the world of the imaginal. And we also, again, the, the parallels between that Um, phrase from alchemy which we've mentioned several times, do not proceed until all has become liquid so there's in Avicenna's thing this this spring, the immersion in the spring, in the liquid and through that everything becomes uh, light, as in not heavy not solid, the malleability of perception there so just pointing out some parallels across uh, what on the face of it seem like very different traditions and the Buddhist and the um, uh Uh, Islamic mysticism Um, but this is for many people a real key uh, to imagine not for everyone but for many people it's a real key to opening up the possibilities of magical practice So most emptiness practices are practices of unfabricating. I've said this quite a few times now. Um, We're learning to fabricate less, and and in doing so, in engaging emptiness practices, the sense of the solidity or fixedness or um, givenness of things Uh, is lightened, this whole things become liquid, perception becomes malleable. Now it also does that, as I'm repeating now from the beginning of the retreat through, uh, as samadhi deepens, there's a sense too of the body and the world of perception becoming less solid, more malleable, also through meta practice too. A lot of dharma practices will share this um, liquefying aspect, uh, this making less solid of the world of perception, this unfabricating um, aspect is what they do. Imaginal practice also has this effect. So someone might not have done <clears throat> any emptiness practice or any of those other, other dharma practices and actually just engage in imaginal practice it actually renders the sense of the self and the world less solid, and more malleable, and so actually gives rise to um, an understanding of emptiness and an experience of emptiness, of this um, fabricated Uh, nature of perception through imaginal practice. And then both through deep emptiness practice or through meta practice or through imaginal practice, very um, common for organically um, a sense of perceiving the world as divine or perceiving other or this or that as angel, as theophany. A sense of cosmopoesis to open organically by itself as one practices imaginal practice or emptiness practice deeper and deeper. Uh, I wrote about this in, in 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 the book that that I wrote as 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 the emptiness practice gets really really deep and starts even coming spinning back on itself so to speak to question even the um, reality of the notion of fabrication saying even fabrication is empty. We can start organically, naturally, many people to, to start perceiving the world as Buddha realm, if you like, to use a certain language from uh, Tibetan Tantra. The world is open to cosmopoesis; the divine world can be perceived. Or um, we can deliberately incline the perception that way through all these practices. All these practices, in fact, are, are mutual, mutually contingent. So imaginal practice and emptiness practice and samatha and metta, they all feed each other. Emptiness practices, practices will lead to samatha, to metta, and to the opening of the imaginal and the perception of the divine world. The deliberate perception of the divine world will bring uh, metta effortlessly and samadhi and will help us see emptiness and open the imaginal for us. All of it, um, metta practice, that's so why we did many years ago at Guy House, um, this retreat, I think we did it three years in a row, a long retreat, loving kindness and compassion as a path to awakening, meaning very specifically that as one deepens in into metta and compassion, one can actually start um, directing that metta and compassion towards phenomena and beginning to see then how phenomena fade uh, and how thus they are fabricated and actually using the metta to and the compassion practice, to understand the deep emptiness of perception, the fabricated nature of perception. But when we practice metta, it will give rise to samadhi. It will give rise to metta, obviously, give rise to samadhi, give rise to to understanding of emptiness. Um, The world, for people who do long metta retreats, um, the world um, begins to be perceived more and more at times in and out as divine in all kinds of different ways cosmopoesis is functioning there just through dedicated meta practice over time so all these practices are actually, if you like mutually feeding uh, mutually uh, yeah, they, they feed each other they nourish each other they open each other and deepen each other so all this uh, talk of um, the imaginal and the malleability of the perception of self, other, world, it's all, <clears throat> as I've mentioned briefly and as many of you will realize, it's all very much related to uh, the teachings of Tantra, Buddhist Tantra, um, which which essentially is um, a whole realm of teachings based on the understanding of emptiness, absolutely um, having there. Uh, having as as a basis the understanding of emptiness, um, then based on that understanding of the emptiness of all things, uh, practicing the perception, the seeing, the sensing of everything as divine, self, other, world as divine, and incorporating into that the including into that the, the, the practice, the use of, of of the imaginal. So obviously, there's a lot of. Um, Link here. The word tantra is 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 quite interesting. It's worth. Um, I just want to open something up a little bit here. That word tantra is a Sanskrit word. Um, uh, the, the the suffix that the last part tra tantra. Um, when you have that as a suffix in Sanskrit, it indicates the root, the first part of the word, the tan. It indicates the root as as the sort of the the means of the action or the instrument of the action that the root means. So, um, uh, uh, if so, for an- another example, the root in, in Sanskrit pat. Uh, P A T um, is to is to fly. That's what it means to fly. So when you put tra on the end, you get patra, um, is the means of flying. The means of flying, which which becomes wing. So patra is wing in in, in, in Sanskrit. So when we come to tantra, um, it means the tra of tan. That the means of of uh, of, of tan of to tan. So. What does the word "tan" mean in Sanskrit? It means a whole bunch of things. Listen, I'm not going to spell all this out. Listen carefully. You might have to re-listen here. Listen carefully and ponder, um, ponder these different um, meanings of the word "tan." So, the tantra as the means of of all this. Um, Um, in relation to everything that we've talked about on this retreat, about archetypes and soul-making and the imaginal and everything, everything that we've covered. Uh, As I said, I'm not going to spell it all out. I'm just going to go through a list. But uh, see if you can hear each one related to, in the field of, or kind of brought alive by everything that we've talked about. So Tantra as a practice, imaginal practice, um, this seeing, of uh this perceiving of all things as divine um, through through the imaginal and through the malleability of perception tan means uh, tantra means that the, the means of the practice of tan means to extend to spread to weave to accomplish so what's being accomplished who or well, for the sake of what is, is something being accomplished? It means to perform as well, something like to perform a ceremony, for instance. It also means to compose, for instance, like a, a, a literary work or a work of art, to assist. Going back to that, uh, that, that, when we're talking about daemons and what wants to come through, who or what is being assisted. It means also to resound, which we could also say to resound. So something that has has an existence at another level is being resounded through my perception, my seeing it, my experiencing it as image here. To resound, to resound, to roar, to emboss. To emboss means to engrave a a pattern of something in or on something else. So again, there's there's a pattern of something which is coming to me as image, then I might see another as image, as angel. Again, I'm not going to spell all these out, but it also means tan. Also means to prepare a way for, to prepare a way for, to prepare a path for, an opening for. Again, for what? For me? For gods? For archetypes? For the daemon? For what wants to come through? Tan also means to direct towards. It also means to manifest. Can you hear the, 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 the resonances of everything that we've been talking about um, in some of these uh, translations of, of what Tantra might mean? To display, again, to sacrifice is another meaning. And sacrifice in Latin is from the Latin root, sacra, uh, fice, to, to make holy. Can you, can you hear the resonances of all this? In, in um, Tibetan usage and, and, and the um, late Indian Buddhism, Mahayana, one meaning, uh, one usage of the word mantra uh, was actually synonymous with the word tantra. So they talk about the path of tantra, um, and one might just say the path of mantra. They use them completely interchangeably. Um, and so, same deal. Uh, mantra in Sanskrit, um, tra is the means or, or the instrument, the the practice of, um, of of man and man as a root in Sanskrit. Man, um, <coughs> the, the, again, listen, we allowing it to, to, to allowing everything that we've talked about to resonate, to to echo in in these in these sort of root meanings, the meanings of the root of what tantra mantra can mean. To believe, man can mean to believe, to imagine to suppose, to conjecture, and there's that that idea of the flexibility of conceptual frameworks, to to regard anyone or anything as, so this idea of the fantasies, the mythoi that pervade our perception and our being in the world. It can mean man can mean to think oneself or be thought to be, to appear as, to be of uh, an opinion, to be of a certain opinion, and again, the, um, this flexibility of conceptual frames, of views, of perspectives, um, but also the views, the perspectives, the ideas of different archetypes. We, we talked about this at a certain point, that each archetype has its own sort of ideational inclination or structures or perspectives. Man can also be to set the heart and mind on something, It can also mean, very beautifully, to honour or esteem. So again, to enter into a view that honours or esteems, but what? What is being honoured or esteemed, and through what? It can also mean simply to perceive, and I have everything to do with what we're talking about. It can mean to offer or present. So what is being presented in this world, to the world of perception? What is being offered through my life? or through the life of another as I see it, or, or through the perception of this thing, or the world, world as offering. There's all kinds of, um, those, those root words translated, I'm not just playing a language game here, it's
1: pregnant
0: with, with so much beauty, and so much richness of, of meaning and possibility to explore. So some of you, uh, you will know, um, when we talk about Tantra, or the path of Tantra, path of Mantra, that includes Dzogchen. So some of you will be a little bit or very familiar with with Dzogchen teachings. And sometimes it's interesting, Dzogchen is quite popular now in the West, but it is a Tantric path. So it's, it's actually... Um, uh, in the context, Zogchen teachings doesn't get emphasized that much because there's so much emphasis on nature of mind and instructions and teachings about nature of mind, but the Zogchen is within a context. Teachings on the nature of mind um, are, are only a part of Zogchen, um, and um, that's within a context of this, this perception or seeing of appearances as divine. That's the context for those narrower teachings about nature of mind. Um, and it's, Cutting through instructions and all, and all that um, are in a much bigger context that has to do with basically what Tantra is, which is this um, practice of the perception of all things as divine, or seeing all appearances as divine. That's the context. And that's the context of the teaching of the nature of mind. And also, the purpose of the teachings of the nature of mind are because they bring a, bring a very deep freedom, of course, but also because they liberate, as I am saying, they. Tying back to what we were saying much earlier, they liberate ways of looking, perceptions of, of that divinity of all things. And again, divinity here is not just a universal divinity because everything shares in the nature of mind or everything is awareness or whatever. So everything is divine in the same way. Um, it's a quite personal if you like, there is personhood in in this or that divinity that, um, if you like, the universe expresses the different persons of divinity. Now, I'm aware that I'm using this word quite a lot, divine and God and this or that, and and, uh, I know it makes many people very nervous and uh, other people just put up walls to it, and, and all kinds of reactions can go on. Um, so I want to explore that a little bit in the next talk. And What what, what do we mean, anyway? How can we conceive of this word um, that, to some, is very comfortable and others is, is very alien and very off-putting? So I want to explore that in, in, in the next talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Seed